Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years' War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War One Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years' War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluge. Britain goes to war. The 1916. To the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails. Remastered. is the sixth part of When Diplomacy Fails Remastered Look at the Wars Against the French, which originally aired as a three-part special from the 25th of July to the 5th of August, 2012. So welcome back to the war once again. Last time, French predominance over the continent seemed assured, With British intransigence came new ideas about how to best deal with the largest empire in the world, and Napoleon thought he had the solution with his continental system. A series of agreements whereby Britain would eventually be choked out of European trade. To entice his allies and petrified rivals to agree, Napoleon had to engage in some extensive campaigning over the period 1806-7, but as 1807 wound down it seemed as though it had all been worth it with two new states in the Confederation of the Rhine and the Grand Duchy of Warsaw under his control, and with Russia and Spain both maintaining a war against Britain alongside him, Napoleon must have believed that Britain's final continental ally, Portugal, would represent the final pushover. What he didn't expect was the deviation of his plans, or the disasters which would follow. I will now take you all to late 1807. Nothing except a battle lost can be half as melancholy as a battle won. Arthur Wellesley. 
The Peninsular War began not as an invasion of Spain, but as a war against Portugal. The Treaty of Fontainebleau had guaranteed that Spain and France would carve up not just Brazil, but Portugal itself, and that Lisbon would cease to exist as a sovereign state. The reason why Napoleon wanted to invade Portugal comes down to his continental system. Portugal, in an alliance of sorts with Britain since as far back as 1347 in some cases, refused to join the French in their boycott of British goods, or in allowing the French to occupy their ports and supervise their trade. Britain promised to aid its ally, and this likely emboldened the Portuguese to hold strong against French threats. Napoleon was certainly annoyed that all of Europe was not conforming to his plans, but he believed that by using his ally, Spain, he could persuade the Portuguese to join. It wouldn't be hard. I mean, he'd done it to everyone else in Europe, and Portugal was tiny in comparison to everyone else. Thus, the treaty signed with Spain would hopefully enable Napoleon to waltz right into Portugal and flip them over to his side. Historians tend to mark this campaign as the moment when Napoleon now began to show a certain lack of tact and a demonstrated arrogance in his actions, qualities which were uncharacteristic in my opinion, especially if you look at how he conducted the war in every other theatre. As French troops began to file into Spain, officially to reinforce the Franco-Spanish alliance and ensure the downfall of Portugal, it became obvious that those French soldiers were not planning on leaving and tensions began to rise as the Spanish Prime Minister, Manuel de Godoy suspected that his French allies' intentions were perhaps more sinister. In this, he was right. Even while the Franco-Spanish moves against Portugal seemed like just another Napoleonic success story, with Lisbon captured on the 1st of December 1807, Portugal's defeat was not guaranteed. The Portuguese royal family and the majority of their sailors escaped to Brazil, where they continued to govern in exile. European Portugal then may have been completely occupied and little actual fighting occurred during that process, but British and Portuguese cooperation ensured that the coast of Portugal was a safe place to run to, and many Portuguese soldiers escaped to plan with Britain the next phase in the Napoleonic Wars, that of reinvading Portugal and battling through the Iberian Peninsula. They could ensure a good reception when they did decide to return, so Brazil was for the moment an invaluable market to a Britain now severed, from its European markets. All these moves considered, Napoleon's decision to turn on his Spanish ally seems a curious and needless one to us now. The war was evidently being won, or at the very least Portugal was now a non-entity in Europe, so why was the decision made in February of 1808 to gradually turn the bulk of French forces already in Spain against Madrid? Depending on who you ask, Napoleon had several reasons for turning against Spain, and these included, he wanted to reinforce his position in Iberia, he wanted to secure his brother Joseph on the Spanish throne, he wanted to ensure that no Spanish plans for a peace with Britain could be realised, he believed Spain would fall quickly and its defeat would leave it as a more malleable ally, as was the case with Prussia for example, and finally, Napoleon insisted that Madrid was not upholding its end of the bargain, and continued to violate the continental system through its soaring black market through which Britain continued to make money. It could be any number of these reasons, but the fact is that Napoleon started a war against Spain when he could have just left Iberia the way it was. The apparently nonchalant way in which Napoleon made the decision had a lot to do with the fact that he didn't think it would be a campaign of much consequence, because don't forget, no serious threat to Napoleon had emerged yet in continental Europe. Once again, all the signs pointed to a quick French victory, 
So when on the 2nd of May 1808, a revolt by the citizens of Madrid broke out against the French presence of all the soldiers there, and Spanish citizens across portions of the country began to assault French soldiers in turn, Napoleon didn't hold back. Insisting that the attacks were orchestrated by the Spanish monarchy, he orchestrated a campaign of his own, which proved to be the beginning of total war against the mostly unprepared Spanish, who had at no point been instructed to provoke the French into engaging them. The Madrid uprising also proved to be the catalyst for the Spanish people's resistance to France, while it also gave Napoleon the excuse he needed to abandon any pretenses of friendship and act directly against the Spanish monarchy. Though not yet deposed officially, the Spanish King Ferdinand was still being held at Bayonne until Napoleon could figure out who should replace him. When Napoleon ordered that Ferdinand's younger son and daughter be removed, the word spread and outrage gradually began to ferment within the Spanish psyche. The result was an uprising across Madrid which claimed nearly 1,000 lives in total. Reprisals by the French were particularly bloody, this much is clear when one reads what General Murat stated upon learning of the uprising. He said, The population of Madrid, led astray, has given itself to revolt and murder. French blood has flowed. It demands vengeance. All those arrested in the uprising, arms in hand, will be shot. A little bit down the road, while the French were rounding up the last of the insurgents, a Spanish secretary at the War Council and Lord of the Admiralty, Juan Perez Villamil, learned of the event and urged the mayor of the town of Mostoles to issue a proclamation. This proclamation was a turning point because it was a call to arms for all Spanish men to rise up against the French invaders. This document, called the Bando de la Independencia, was signed on the 2nd of May, 1808, in a dusty cellar a few miles from where the French had destroyed the Madrid uprising. It was a ringing declaration, and it solidified Spanish zeal. He didn't know it yet, but Napoleon had just started the first war that he would find himself unable to win. David Chandler, in his book, The Campaigns of Napoleon, stated that, Napoleon never appreciated how independent the Spanish people were of their government. He misjudged the extent of their pride, or of the tenacity of their religious faith and of their loyalty to Ferdinand. He anticipated that they would accept the change of regime without demur. Instead, he soon found himself with a war of truly national proportions on his hands. As he faced the sudden prospect of French armies taking over the country, the Spanish king, Charles IV, had abdicated in favour of his son Ferdinand to both appease his people and grant them a new monarch to rally around. Initially, it seemed as though the situation would continue as normal, but then Napoleon made the mistake of deposing this new king Ferdinand and sending them, both father and son, into exile in Bayonne, as we saw. As if this interference wasn't bad enough, Napoleon then committed the more incendiary act of naming his elder brother Joseph as the king of Spain. Following the massacre at Madrid and the resulting hatred Spaniards felt for the French, the announcement was especially ill-timed and unfortunate, and only added fuel to the fire of the Spanish rage. For his part, Joseph Ferdinand wasn't especially happy to be named King of Spain, since as King of Naples, he was living it up in peace and luxury while ruling a kingdom that had few difficulties adjusting to the Napoleonic order. A sense of dread would have no doubt accompanied the news that he had been chosen by his younger brother to stand as King of Spain. He agreed, of course, but he recognised that his job would be far harder than the previous one had been. 
Joseph was able to see which way the wind was blowing. Unlike Napoleon, he seemed more aware of the implications in replacing the monarch of Spain with a Napoleonic candidate. Joseph didn't expect a warm reception from the country that Napoleon had straight up betrayed, launched a coup in, and continued to interfere with. Joseph was right too, as on the 5th of May 1808, after seeing their Bourbon monarch forcibly removed from office, the Spanish saw Joseph not as a monarch, but as a symbol of foreign oppression. It didn't matter how lenient or enlightened Joseph wanted to be, the Spanish didn't want him as king. Nationalism became an issue now, as a popular uprising spread like wildfire throughout Spain. The fires of patriotism were fanned by the nobility and clergy, who realised what French rule meant for Spanish sovereignty. While the uprising spread, atrocities, as we saw, were inevitable on both sides. Napoleon's armies weren't used to fighting an enemy that retreated back into the hills. They had been raised on pitched battles. That was their bread and butter, and yet the Spanish, though they achieved virtually no military victories and lost what small skirmishes they did engage in, they always returned to fight again. Spanish guerrillas took their cue from the Neapolitans, who Joseph had only recently watched butcher a number of governmental forces sent to quell them. With the dangers of an insurgency embedded in his mind, Joseph likely longed for Naples by the end of spring 1808. In August 1808, the dynamic of the war in Iberia changed from being one of a rebellion to a serious theatre of war in Europe, when the British uncharacteristically landed troops on the 18th of August and faced the French in running battles near the Portuguese towns of Rolica and Vimiero. Most marked this as the beginning of the Fourth Coalition, as the landing effectively opened a new front in the war. The British armies, surprisingly, were victorious. This was perhaps Britain's first concrete action in the war, choosing to land in force to aid their Portuguese ally and also increase the potency of the Spanish rebels in the process. This was where Arthur Wellesley, an Irishman soon to become Duke of Wellington and eventually Britain's Prime Minister, first burst onto the scene. The victory against the French at the Battle of Vimiero on the 21st of August 1808 was a major boost to British, Portuguese and Spanish morale. It enabled the British beachhead in Portugal to continue supplying the embarked coalition forces, while Napoleon could do very little due to the near-complete lack of any French fleet in the area. I often mark this in my head as the point where Britain got serious about the war against Napoleon, so August 1808 being that point. After having paid off Europe to fight on land against Napoleon, a not-cowardly strategy, as some Napoleonic apologists claim, Britain was now taking the military stand which was so vital in the struggle against Napoleon. The only way to beat France would be on land, just like the only way to really beat Britain would have been at sea. Although Wellington was not in command at all times due to his young age, his talent soon shone through, and as the war in Iberia progressed, it would be Wellington who led this army for better or worse against Napoleon's attentions the beachhead thus secure, Wellington could at least console himself with the fact that he was in friendly territory now. The result of Wellington's junior status was that many outranked him in the British army, and those that outranked him were not exactly the most revolutionary or capable in their strategies. This meant that when his command was... Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. 
One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Superseded by the elderly Sir Harry Bird and Sir Hugh Dalrymple, those men chose to open negotiations with the French in Portugal rather than pursue them, as Wellington so badly wanted to do. The Convention of Sintra was the result of the caution and lack of initiative which was so unfortunately rampant among the conservative military classes around this time. Those that deviated from the trend, such as Wellington or indeed the late Nelson, were often viewed with suspicion and indignation. Sintra was good in some ways though because it guaranteed French troops, under the command of the recently defeated Jean Andos Junot, free passage out of Portugal. It was important for the exiled Portuguese because it meant that sovereignty could return to the Portuguese state and Lisbon itself could properly resume its war against the French from Europe, not just Brazil. With an allied turnaround like this, you could be forgiven for thinking that the whole affair had been a boon for British fortunes. In fact, while Portuguese restoration was always going to be a good thing, the terms by which the French negotiated their escape were seen as less good. It was seen as bad and an awful embarrassment because the French were allowed to travel with all of their booty, which was mainly Portuguese, and they had to pay little for their loss. Dalrymple was widely viewed as the one to blame, as he had apparently turned a British victory, which were hard to come by, don't forget, especially so on land, into a successful French escape. It is worth emphasising how big a deal it was that the French actually lost ground at all in Portugal. This was the first such example of a loss in some time, and it is tempting to view it as a turning of the tide. The main reason it happened, arguably though, was because Napoleon was not in place, and the French forces were largely outnumbered by their allied counterparts. When these two factors were reversed, as they would be soon, then the true test of allied metal would come. Dalrymple was also blamed for basically ignoring the large Russian fleet, which was vulnerable at Lisbon. Since Britain and Russia were technically at war, it would have been wise to destroy such a large collection of enemy ships while the opportunity presented itself. But the Anglo-Russian War, as it is referred to now, was full of such examples which proved time and again that neither side wanted any real confrontation in the war. Russia couldn't afford it financially and Britain couldn't afford it militarily. The war was largely lip service from Alexander of Russia to Napoleon of France. Such a war was also unpopular among the aristocratic Russian circles, who still viewed Napoleon as the usurper with the dangerous ideas. 
In economic terms, Napoleon was finding it very difficult, as Alexander claimed he also was, in maintaining the continental system and keeping Britain out from the European trading picture. The black market was already notorious in Russia before the continental system took root, mostly due to Russia's large size and the scale of loyalties from anti-French to anti-British. Even the most ardent Napoleonic supporters in St. Petersburg were having immense difficulty keeping up with the demands of the continental system. Russia's ruble was badly mauled by the war's initial military losses, and the lack of British capital to trade alongside further damaged Russian buying and spending power, as well as its ability to raise loans in the first place. By this point, barely half of Russia even used the ruble. Most would make use of a barter economy in the poorer regions, and these citizens were generally more susceptible to the ideas of the French Revolution, and many Russian citizens toiled away in the serfdom system as de facto slaves. It would be making too great a leap to suggest that the Russian citizen dreamt of a French-style revolution, as the aura of the Tsars was still enough to keep many serfs in raptured silence. Still, the discontent was present, and Tsar Alexander would have known that the support of his populace, while not necessary when one is an autocrat, still tended to make policy easier. Alexander hoped, no doubt, for the war against Britain to end, and for world affairs to settle down. For that to happen in 1808, though, Britain would have to make peace with Napoleon, something which, after finally making some headway in Spain, she was unlikely to do. As 1808 neared its end, that aforementioned Fifth Coalition was beginning to take shape. Austria, after having suffered defeat three times before at Napoleon's hands, was still somehow eager for revenge, and such was the influence of the war party in Vienna that the calls for war became deafening in late 1808. But it wasn't until British victories in Portugal and French difficulties in Spain exposed the weakness of Napoleon's France that Austria really began to clamour for another shot. If you think about it this way, Britain had been at war with Napoleonic Europe since 1803, and was only too willing to establish a new coalition themselves. On the subject of Austria's fourth call to arms, our friend Todd Fisher writes, Between 1806 and 1808, the Habsburg Empire swung back and forth between calls to join a war against France and the Peace Party, led by Charles, who argued more time was needed to implement the necessary reforms within the Austrian army. By the end of 1808, the war party gained the upper hand when the Habsburgs interpreted Napoleon's Spanish woes as a chance for revenge. Thus, the preparations for war were resumed for the fourth time in 20 years. But the perceived Spanish woes were exaggerated by Austria's war party. The Battle of Balen in July 1808 had galvanised the Spanish, British and Portuguese forces against France as it had been a shocking French defeat. Upon hearing of the loss of Portugal to the Allies with the convention of Sintra and the state of his troops in Iberia, Napoleon made the decision to go there himself, saying, I see that everybody has lost their head since the infamous capitulation at Balen. I realise that I must go there myself to get the machine working again. Perhaps less concerned at the material loss of the battle, and more aware of the fact that his luster would be deadened if even his subordinates lost too many battles, Napoleon planned for a campaign to push the surprised British and their allied invasion out of Iberia and back to where they belonged in Brazil. Under the command again of their beloved emperor, the French were able to turn the fortunes of war around. Napoleon arrived in Spain with 100,000 veterans, probably a little bit peeved that it had come to this. 
he declared to his Spanish deputies. I am here with the soldiers who conquered at Austerlitz, at Jena, at Eilau. Who can withstand them? Certainly not your wretched Spanish troops who do not know how to fight. I shall conquer Spain in two months and acquire the rights of a conqueror. The force of Napoleon's character seemed to have willed his confident and battle-hardened troops onto victory against the 80,000 Spanish militia that faced him. The French began to make waves after beginning a campaign which swept up the Spanish in a mass pincer movement in October 1808, culminating in the capture of Madrid by Napoleon on the 4th of December 1808. French victory seemed total once again, but the British and their allies remained in play. Sir John Moore, now in command of these British forces, made the decision to attack a smaller French force under the command of General Soult. General Soult was in command of 16,000 men, and if defeated, would at the very least deny Napoleon any reinforcements. The attack made on the 15th of December 1808 by the British against the French, near Madrid itself, was a success, but it wasn't the crushing victory that Moore needed. Furthermore, it was believed that Napoleon himself would soon be on the scene, and hearing this, Moore made the decision to retreat to the west coast, 400 kilometres away. He knew that his small force of 35,000 men couldn't hope to match that of Napoleon's 100,000-man juggernaut, so this epic retreat across Spain and into Portugal began on the 21st of December 1808. When Napoleon heard that the British were at least relatively nearby, he ordered his army to march double time and defeat them, since this was Britain's only existing field army on the continent and, conversely, in the war itself. But it was clear to Napoleon that the massively outnumbered and closely pursued British would not offer battle, so on the 31st of December 1808, he took 45,000 of his men and went back to Madrid, leaving command of the pursuing French army in the hands of the very capable Marshal Ney. This withdrawal and consolidation of his Spanish position had been made necessary because Napoleon had received incredible news. His agents had told him of Austrian moves towards war by this stage, while he had also been informed by his friends in Paris that his enemies were planning political intrigues against him. Determined to safeguard his regime and strategic position on the continent, it was necessary for Napoleon to stay nearby France while such dangers were rumoured to be floating around. Though, as we shall see, Napoleon's biggest problem in this case was that he was only one man. Moore was likely indignant of Napoleon's absence, if he even knew, as he was focused solely on withdrawing his army from a safe location on the west coast. Often it looked as though his forces would be caught by the larger French army. Famously, three British soldiers who were due to be hanged for looting were left behind when the French got too close for comfort. Eventually though, when he reached a town in northwest Spain called Corona on the 11th of January 1809, Moore realised to his horror that his transport vessels were not there. They had in fact been delayed and wouldn't arrive for another two days, so Moore knew he was in trouble. He now faced a French army far larger than his own, but he could go nowhere. Faced with no other option than to dig in, Moore made use of the local peasantry and the help provided by the soldiers to dig a series of fortifications. Selecting some high ground, Moore waited with his well-prepared and by now well-rested soldiers for an army nearly three times his size to attack. Despite the size difference though, it wasn't all doom and gloom for General Moore, since the British were able to resupply and prepare for the coming battle, while the French, who had to march as quickly as possible to prevent the British escaping, 
were hungry, tired and about to attack a reinforced position. On the morning of the 16th of January 1809, with the British wary of the need to embark on their now present naval vessels, but with little chance of doing so unmolested while the French army was right in front of them, the French attack began. It was a bloody, hard-fought and uncompromising battle, fought over walls, in farmhouses and into trenches. The rough ground counterbalanced the French superiority in cavalry, while the British line faltered at midday once more, who had been directing battle since 6am, was struck with a cannonball and slowly died. He was succeeded by a General Baird, who was also badly wounded, and he was succeeded by the appropriately named General Hope, who made the decision that night when the British had held the line to withdraw silently onto the awaiting transports. The operation was bound by the desperate secrecy reminiscent of another famous evacuation. The next morning, on the 17th of January 1809, the British were all but gone from Portugal, having left supplies and cannon behind, but also saving the majority of their army to fight another day. The jury is still out as to whether the British should have or could have counter-attacked or continued to hold their ground. Historians today, though, widely view the Battle of Corona and the campaigning by Moore and others before it as a so-called Dunkirk, i.e. a heroic retreat, but a retreat nonetheless, and everyone knows, as our good friend Churchill says, wars are not won by retreats. What was the significance of the Battle of Corona then? Well, in my view, it represented a good showing for British arms, because they held the line and withdrew in an orderly fashion, even while French arms remained supreme. It is thus an important story to tell in the narrative of the Peninsular War, the reason being it demonstrated the hard grind which Allied soldiers were forced to pass through if they wanted to do battle with the enemy. It displayed the stronghold that France maintained on Iberia, since despite the running operation, the end result must be considered a French victory. The Allies had left in good order, but they had still left, and thus no longer fielded an army to use against French designs. At the very least, Corona had shown Napoleon that Britain was serious about continuing the war. The invasion of Portugal, right up to the orderly evacuation, had been a campaign both of sacrifice and precision. These were not the actions of a defeated enemy, which Napoleon believed, after so many years cut off from European trade, Britain should by now have been. Spain remained a vulnerable theatre so long as the Spanish remained in the hills and ambushed his men. At the same time, though Britain had acknowledged defeat, it had withdrawn and lost many men, thousands of barrels of gunpowder, and abandoned one of Spain's most populous regions to the French. In addition, the affair also damaged Anglo-Spanish relations, because London had presented the endeavour as one which boasted a larger number of troops than were actually fielded. Thus, when Madrid learnt of the British retreat, it immediately questioned why the British had withdrawn, and rumours swirled around that the late Moor had been difficult to deal with and that he had abandoned the Spanish during his campaigns. Whatever the bad press that resulted between the two allies, though, an Anglo-Spanish alliance was signed on the 14th of January 1809 between London and the Spanish military junta, now in control of the country. As Napoleon planned one last campaign to knock Portugal out of the war, he was forced to leave the campaign there to his marshals. He was required along the Rhine, as the Austrians seemed to be preparing their armies for the attack once more.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.